0: I don't
1: think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field.
0: Leinster
2: could have me five mil a year I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is Tommy Robbie Robbie's weekly.
0: Getting the first pass, It is. Oh! drive
2: him! Magic! Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. This podcast is sponsored by Guinness, who are also proud sponsors of the Women's Six Nations and will be sponsoring the pod throughout the tournament. A reminder to always drink responsibly. Gavin Casey here, joined as always by the two big men, Murray Kinsella of the 42.ie. Murray, how are you?
1: Good, Gav. Deadly that we get another Six Nations um, and standalone window for the women's competition, so... Um, obviously some big scorelines last weekend But it's just exciting to see Ireland back in action after a long time
2: It really is, I'm looking forward to this standalone competition I think it could really flourish uh, f- uh, Having removed itself from the shadow of the men's game really And uh, standing on its own two feet There's um, a lot more room and a lot more scope to talk about it I think over the coming weeks And looking forward to getting stuck into it with yourself And with Bernard Jackman Bert. how are you?
0: Yeah, good, thank you um, Yeah, just on the women's, it's a piteous clash with the... Uh, Sir, Exeter, but um, yeah, I think it's great to see us it having its own, um, own place in the calendar and yeah, hopefully, it gets, um gets the support that it, that it deserves.
2: We'll look ahead to that Ireland Wales encounter in the Women's Six Nations. Also, going to chat about Exeter, Leinster, as you can imagine. Um, just to look back on the weekend, Murray and I had a chat on Monday for the 42 members. I subbed in for own tooling, but thankfully, didn't provide any real analysis. We swapped roles and we we'll let Murray off the leash a little bit. We don't need to dig into it too much with him, but to get your own thoughts on it, Birch, uh, starting with that monster to lose game, obviously unbelievable spectacle. Our monster constantly improving per Johan van ha- van Grans claims. Uh,
0: yeah, probably, I don't think they're improved massively. I think they're probably the same, the same place they've been for the last you know uh, three or four seasons. Just, um, just good enough to be there in the knockout stages. Um, no one, were, no one. Not an easy game for anybody, but yet probably lacking that killer instinct or that cutting edge to, to be genuine contenders, you know. Um, so like this year, they've you know they've got knocked out before the quarterfinal stage of, of Europe. And I know Toulouse are are a strong team, but um, I, I'm not sure Toulouse for me are in my top four. Our, our top three teams likely to win it anyway. Uh, luckily, I suppose for for the others, Exeter and Leinster two of the teams who are playing each other this weekend, and in a quarter-final stage, so one will exit left. But, um, yeah, Munster, look, there was a better performance than, obviously, the week before, but there was always going to be that backlash if there hadn't been, um, you know, it would have been very disappointing. But I still think to ship 40 points at home, you know, isn't um isn't the kind of uh form or performance that you, you can really, you know, say, oh, that's that's where we're at. But 40 points at home is, is a lot of points, and... I actually think Toulouse could have scored maybe more, which uh, shows some of the defensive issues that um, that Munster have at the moment. And I know they were delighted with only conceding one try against Leinster, but I still thought their defence was, was pretty average against Leinster. It was just some very good scramble um, and probably some poor decision-making execution from Leinster. So I think there's issues there defensively um they need to sort out if they're going to be winning silverware
2: is that the thing that would jump out to you as being the key factor holding them back at this point are there other issues because when you look at how Toulouse have re- rebounded really from the doldrums on a period in which uh they weren't kind of covering the club in glory themselves they've managed to do that in kind of three or four years and become a dominant force in Europe uh you reckon like they'll probably get semi-finals at least this year. We'll see. Like they have to go to Claremont, obviously. But uh, Munster, on the other hand, have been rebuilding, if you want to call it that, for around the same period of time. And yet, Toulouse have passed them out. There's no other real way to put it. I think after that game.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And um, Toulouse hit rock bottom. I mean, they actually were in a relegation battle. Um, so there was a real sense of certainty were not on the right track and they they looked at basically everything and they realized they lost touch with kind of what made them special and and they lost their identity a little bit and and that's the that's the issue a little bit for Munster, I think is that you know uh, like not getting beaten getting beaten by 10 points by Leinster in the final you know having a a decent performance against Toulouse just move on as normal um what Toulouse went through and I was there I was in France at the time um you know they as i said they hit rock bottom they went from being a top 4 team to a bottom 4 team one season and and what they do they brought back you know Ugamola. they brought William Servat in um you know they recruited Antoine Dupont. they bought him from Cast even though they they were in a difficult situation financially they they gamble on him um because they felt that they had guys like Label, like um Intermac uh, like Ramos uh, in their academy, uh, as long as well as a, like like uh, Croix, uh, Francois Croix, um, and some other young forwards, Marchand, etc. So, um, and they give those guys their their time. So it's a very, it's it's a clear sense of how they play is 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 old school Toulouse, um, and also the team is backboned by young Toulouse academy graduates. Um, so there's that sense of identity. So. That's, that's the difference between Munster and Toulouse, as far as I can see. Is that Toulouse knew they were in trouble and made a plan and strategy to get out of it. And at the moment, I just get a sense of, and I mean, hopefully I'm wrong, is that Munster seem to think they're on the right track. And maybe, maybe, look, maybe they are. But um, I, I don't know. I, I think that maybe they're further away than they think they are. And um, unless they really solve that and, and kind of get their identity defensively, attack wise, in terms of the personnel and the team, um, you know, they're, they're going to struggle.
2: If Munster are on the right track, Murray, it's a long track at this point. And just going back to what Bernard was saying about Toulouse hitting rock bottom, I think we've touched upon it on the pod before, maybe without fleshing it out so much. Munster won't hit rock bottom to the same extent as Toulouse. They're never going to be... You'd imagine they're not going to be in a situation where they're missing out on playoffs even in the Pro 14. Rock bottom was probably... Um, 2016, even before the tragedy with Axel and so on, some of the results were appalling, and they've built themselves back to a certain level since then. But when you're kind of in the knockout stages most years in European competition, when you are making Pro 14 semi-finals and this year a final without semi-finals, there probably isn't the same impetus to change or to try to see where you're going wrong necessarily because. It might be seen as you're going wrong in only a couple of massive games, but the problems are recurring at this point. And I said after the game on Twitter, usual thing for me, like reflexive reaction to a monster defeat and a lot of people didn't really like it. But the the problem used to be European semifinals and this year they certainly didn't get to one. Last year they didn't even make it out of the pool, so to me it feels like they're further away. And then you have people going, "Ah, oh, well, they were unlucky this year with the draw against Toulouse, and they were, of course." But like they were unlucky last year with the draw in the pool as well. Like luck will only take you so far; you can't rely on it. Uh, you have you're going to come across elite teams in this competition at some stage. You can't just be waiting in, until the semi-finals. So, uh, in terms of like a, I guess long-term progress, I don't see it. I'm wondering, do you see it in line with what Van Grand was saying there on Monday?
1: Um, I suppose the issue is that the other good teams, the stronger teams, are are actually getting stronger at a a clearer, more obvious rate. I think like Toulouse have a lot left in them. I I think I, Leinster do probably as well in their own mind. Exeter do, Racing certainly do, and will keep improving. And obviously, all those clubs have have strong budgets as well to make right moves. Even if it's not from homegrown players, they can all improve. Um, so yeah, I, I, I probably don't see them accelerating at, at that level, but within Munster, they'll feel, listen, we're close. We ran Leinster, cl- well, not close in that final, but we've run them close a few times recently. Um, we gave to lose an unbelievable battle. They'll feel RG Snyman, one of the best players in the world, is coming back next year, and Jason Jenkins is coming in as well, so that even if you lose CJ Sander, you're getting two powerful forwards back. They'll feel that a couple of those promising players who we've discussed quite a lot in this podcast are a step closer to contributing. They'll feel that Joey Carberry, finally free of injury um, and getting back up towards his best, which understandably he wasn't in the in the two massive games. It was it would have been a massive ask for him to boss them after so long out. But they'll feel with him um, at tip top shape, they'll they will close the gap and and that's how they that's how they see it. That's what we know from from everything Yarmar has said. Um, for me, no, probably not to that extent. And as I say. Other teams appear to be moving forward with more conviction, I suppose, than, than
2: Munster do. There's a danger yeah, there. Of... Sorry, like, Brennan.
0: Gav, yeah, I'm not saying... I am I hope that wasn't taken as, uh, you know, I think Van Gran or anyone. It's not a direction that of any of the coaches... Um, It's just as an organisation. Um, You know, anecdotally, Munster spend a lot of money on this. Uh, this squad costs a lot of money. They're not the poor relations of european rugby anymore okay Racing and and and, and to lose uh, for sure would have a bigger budget but they have they spend enough to be more than competitive i'm just talking around spend that money really wisely you know having a real smart strategy um in terms of um in terms of your 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 roster in terms of your depth chart, in terms of where you spend your money like for like for example like for me um you know Extra lenser this weekend, you know. Look at the tight head. Look at the two and three in both teams, and then look at the backup two and three. You know they're they're proper, um, you know, international or or Champions Cup quality players. Um, and you know, look at two and three for Toulouse. Look at two and three for for Racing, Look at two and three for for Claremont. That's where I think Munster's issue is a little bit. Is that is Snyman would be great, but unless you get you know a front row who can do what you know the top teams do you're always going to be uh vulnerable and I, and I, and I just don't think I think that's where monster are, are that's one area for example in terms of the, the squad depth is where they're a little bit behind
2: there is a danger of getting caught in purgatory as well though bernard isn't there when you're knocking on the door constantly ultimately eventually you have to open the door but when you're at it it sort of feels like you're doing things right and again there isn't that maybe internal internally there maybe isn't uh, a need to change seen by people within that organisational structure, not just the coaches, as you say.
0: Yeah, uh, look, look I, I don't know who does the. I don't know, uh, like it's it's a difficult one because they kind of have a different. They have a different um, setup off the field than than others. I mean, obviously a new CEO come in. Um, you know, Johan, Johan Razi Erasmus was the DOR, and he looked after contracts. He looked after the the game strategy he looked after retent- uh, retention he seems to do everything right there's very few guys who can do what razzi or or joe schmidt does and and i probably think there may be missing somebody who's just there in terms of long-term succession planning and and uh, making sure that the right decisions are being made so that they can have sustainable success rather than the head coach and i know this from experience it's a very difficult thing to do to think think long term you know when you're in a on a medium to short-term contract i mean that's that's where you need someone above you who's who's able to make those decisions or have those discussions that's for the best for the for the team or organization long term and at the moment in munster i mean johan i'm not sure how much experience he has of, of building squads like razzy had um you know his background was a forwards coach um obviously with the box and and, and around the bulls so um and then obviously he's got you know, he he doesn't seem to have a director of rugby or a guy he used to be type in Leinster who looks after all that. So it's a it's an unusual setup, which is fine. You just gotta make it work for for them. And um yeah, I, I would I would worry about now we spoke about Jenkins last week and I don't wanna be picking on him, but you know, and I know loads of people think it makes perfect sense. For me, it wasn't a priority for where they have something coming through and where they're weak. And that's you know, the you know, I think we have to ask those questions when, when we have doubts about it. Because when you are a, an Irish province, you need to make those foreign player spots uh, absolutely count. There's no margin for error. You know, and you can be unlucky like Snyman um, and that's that, That's part of the risk you take. But if you sign somebody in a position where you've got some depth, um, and there's a massive gap somewhere else, well, then you, you know, you, the questions have to be asked
1: and Gav, and Gav, like i know a lot of people think it's probably like shit on monster week month season and and we end up talking about them in a negative light but like their stated ambitions are to win trophies and to be genuine contenders consistently um and that hasn't it's probably less so the case in the in the last while in terms of them being really genuine contenders you know the leinster final was a dominant performance from leinster and as as birch says they've been knocked out before the quarterfinals for two seasons in a row uh, as others kind of pull clear and there's something like Munster could be They have so many unique and amazing factors to the club I know there's no fans there at the moment but like Tone Park is one of the most special places in world rugby Limerick rugby was such a beacon of of everything and almost kickstarted Irish rugby in a way that Munster team um, so there's passion there there's people who want to see more from it there's people who want to have a more identifiable, I suppose, sense of what monster is to grasp onto and and, and drive things forward. So, um, well, we're probably looking at it all in, in negative light. They're doing loads of good things, but it could be better.
2: Could be. Uh, any questions about Connacht, Bernard, and where they're going? It was a disappointing result, I thought, at the weekend, given we were missing a few of their frontline players, albeit we, we kind of suspected that it was going to be tough for Connacht anyway. Just felt a little bit deflating, I guess, after a season where they... Um, threatened to kind of produce something and uh, I don't know maybe the, a sense of familiarity about it from a Connock point of view
0: yeah um, yeah unfortunately uh, we, we proved what we said last week proved right that Leicester's strength around the line-up is is Connor's weakness so um, it had a huge impact on, on the game um, I think connor be very disappointed because they actually got back they got back into the game when they had no right to and and um, I think it was the seventy-second minute. They were back within a couple of points. Uh, Leicester kicked off and and Papi uh, uh, Papi got ripped stripped in the twenty-two and, and and Leicester scored from that and the game got away from him. So you know it, it, the, the small moment like that probably cost them. But having said that, um, they did look a team a little bit off. And look, there's been there's been issues in the in the background there. Obviously, two coaches leaving and um, probably a bit of uncertainty a lot of close games that they lost that they could have potentially won so probably self belief and confidence isn't where it needs to be and uh, i think they're a team who'll be looking forward to the off season getting a new coaching group together and uh, you know trying to trying to fix some of the little frailties that have, have cost them and they're not far away they're not far away at all and even against leicester even though the scoreline you know got a, was a huge scoreline um they did score some good tries and they have lots of Lots of positives about them. Um, certainly, their lineup mall defense is, has been poor. All and, and that's something that they need to, um, to to fix uh, defensively as well. Yeah, I think probably a change of defense um, philosophy might might be good for them. But yeah, it it is frustrating if you're a Connacht fan. But I do think the raw materials are there. Um, and I think that senior coach that Andy Friend is looking for, that's going to be a key appointment. And I think it's great. Um, they have appointed and promoted. You know, Colin Tucker and, and Mossy Lawler. Um, but you would say, you know, they probably need one more experienced guy, and I mean, they're looking for that. So that, and then obviously, you know, just have a good preseason and uh, and fix the issues that uh, that have been kind of um, prevalent this season.
2: Might be an opportunity for them at the start of next season, Murray, knowing that their entire coaching team at that point will be settled and and tied down for a couple of years, uh, to really start building from there. And some of those issues to which. Bernard alluded as well. Um, address those with guys that you know are going to be there for the medium term future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they've had a good commitment from players. They wanted to recontract, as we mentioned on Monday, keeping all their key guys. Really, a couple of them are only one year contracts, which is interesting in it in itself. Probably a few who want to get back in the Ireland mix and said, "I'll, I'll commit here again." So it feels like a, a big year ahead for for this group. And that's not to I suppose excuse. They'll feel this season was. I don't know, a bit of a wasted season. It's been all over the place, obviously, and they had no playoffs in the Pro 14 to aim for. And obviously the formats, as you mentioned, were completely rejigged. But that's not to say that players won't feel that's a year of my career that I didn't achieve what I wanted to. Maybe I fell out of the mix in Ireland and not even in the squad anymore. So there'll be a lot of people in that group with major points to prove, I think. And the next few months, even before the off-season, are going to be key to that. It's a great opportunity for them with this rainbow cup coming up and and whatever format we end up eventually with that to maybe start um, making a couple of changes personnel wise get a little bit more experience and then be in position during the summer to really kick on um, and get that clear progress that we thought we had seen and and felt we'd seen under Andy Friend going again with a bit of renewed energy.
2: Ulster season continues then Birch another one you got right they went to Harlequins they made Jerry Flannery eat his words. <laughs> uh, we did say on Monday Flannery wasn't wrong in what he said, but Ulster hammering Harlequins still made it funny, and uh, it was a, a spectacular performance in many ways. They'll feel absolutely primed to win this competition now, even with the trip to the Saints. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, you know, I think when Dan saw the team sheet for Harlequins, um, you know, he must have been must have been delighted. And I think there's question marks around. You know, I don't think it's great. I know it's a it's a condensed um season and and you know there's been a lot of games etc. But it's not good for the competition um to to see a, a knockout game like that being played with a with a with a vastly understrength. strength. So <laughs> all you could do is go and put them away. And I thought they they looked you know look good and we'll get from it. Ironically, you know I watched Northampton Dragons. Northampton did great to come back, but. And and you know uh, and and score a lot of points late and I think they won, you know forty four thirty nine or something like that. But um, I I didn't think Northampton were great either. And you know I think Ulster will will fancy their chances. I, I do think this is a brilliant opportunity for Ulster to to go and win win um win silverware. And even though it looks like a tough draw away from home again, um I I would be surprised if Ulster weren't good enough to to go and get the job done.
2: You fancy them as well, Murray, don't you?
1: Yeah, I absolutely do. I totally agree that this is a brilliant opportunity for them. And while maybe there's factors like an understrength Quinns team to consider on the way, just winning a trophy and the bounce you get out of that is is massive. Um, it will be really important for this group who feel they've made really good progress under Dan McFarland on a I suppose a similar project that he's been driving forward and a style of play that's really identifiable and the players have absolutely em- embraced. Um, and I agree. I don't. I don't think Northampton are are a kind of force of, of European rugby. They're, they've got some really good attacking weapons out the back line. Someone like Naira who scored two tries in that. Pretty impressive comeback, as Bernard says, last weekend against Dragons. Dan Bigger's been injured, but he's a maybe kind of for this week. Uh, a few young guys like Fraser Dingwall, who, who can cut you open. But I think Ulster will have strength up front to kind of get on top of them and give that really exciting back line. Like just so exciting that back line at the moment. To plenty of opportunity to to strike. Guys like Lowry, Ballicoon, Stockdale, these are the people we want to see on the ball with a little bit of time and space because they can do real damage. The midfield as well, even picking it is is tough because you have Stuart Moore emerging and and Hume's been so good and McCloskey obviously always really important and integral. And John Cooney, what an attacking weapon he can be. So I'm excited to watch them again and I do think they'll feel this is a really brilliant opportunity. There's the Rainbow Cup, as I mentioned as well. So potentially there as well, and and you you finish a, a weird old season in a really positive way, and you and you get that bounce for for next season.
2: You had a question sent to you via email, Murray. That I'm gonna. Read out here before we move on from last weekend. And it came from Connor. And Connor says, Hope you're well. I have a slightly more detailed one than one f- <laughs> a slightly more detailed one than would fit in the WhatsApp group. That's when you know it's serious. Uh, he says, Is the siding system <laughs> in rugby broken? We saw genge escape a siding for an elbow to Sexton's face a couple of weeks ago. And now Jake Ball has escaped a siding for uh, the clearly reckless high shot on fat at the very least why not use a siding commissioner's warning to acknowledge foul play if i think back there are there are very few sightings i can think of in recent months the marler grope being a high profile exception do you get the sense that or, or do you have a sense of whether this plays out in the data i know more stuff is caught in the form of red cards uh sorry i'm this is taking so long to read the the screen locked on me uh, in the form of red cards which is great but there uh, are as many more red cards as there are f- or sorry are there as many more red cards as there are fewer sightings it doesn't feel like, a balance has been struck to me. Perhaps there's an overemphasis on the ref's word being final and not wanting to go beyond that, but I don't like that. Refs are human and performing under pressure, and sightings are a great weapon in the Arsenal. Are there financial pressures, team putting pressure on unions not to lose players to bands? I don't know. I'm reaching in the dark, but I would love to know if you've thought about this best, Connor, Murray, take it from there.
1: Yeah, I probably haven't thought of it in exactly the same way, but I've thought about how frustrating it is. And it's not the first email or message that I've received about the disciplinary process generally around rugby. This and TV rights and who's got which rights are probably the two things that frustrate fans most from my experience. And I totally agree. We did a members newsletter about it recently enough saying that, like, you know, Joe Schmidt's gone into that high-powered role in World Rugby, a lot of stuff around law and refereeing and match officials, and I felt that this is one of the big areas that he can bring a bit of cohesion and regularity to, because it is baffling at times, even when there is a siding, and then there's the process, and there's a ban, and they can be so varying and so confusing i suppose is the word for for supporters one incident will get a a 10 week and, and one will get a 6 week and um, even with the high tackles one we saw this week two laggy for and um he got a 14 week entry point on on his high tackle which looked similar to others that i've seen um and it wasn't clear even from the statement why exactly they they felt that so yeah it's it's a really frustrating part of the game i think you can discuss each incident um, there's a couple of mentioned in the email there from connor um as to its merits and the ball one absolutely baffled me again um i don't have any answers really for it to be honest but i do hope that there's an awareness in world rugby in particular that obviously there's different bodies making these decisions and they've got to run their own disciplinary processes but it needs to be more cohesive as i say across the game because at the moment no one really knows what's going on
2: bert i can see you itching to no, no in it's here. a great
0: question um I, I think it's broken. The system is, is, is broken badly. Um, and I'll be honest, I, I actually think the, cur- the the model that they have at the moment doesn't really make sense, which is where kind of a, a, an ex-referee will go to the game. He'll normally sit near the where the commentators are on a laptop and he'll try and pick up, it's generally a man, he'll try and pick up you know, any any foul play. I, I think there could be value in, in actually using the 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 professional referees, um, you know, uh, maybe on a on a Monday, um, to actually go through the games and, and look for for sighting things. I think it's it's difficult for for the people, you know, one guy, um, on his own, maybe under the pressure to uh, to make a decision pretty quickly, um, to pick up on it. I mean, uh, but maybe with with a little more time with specialist referees or professional, um, it might be good for them as well to to be able to be part of more review, preview of games together via, virtually or whatever um, to try and, you know, get more consistency there because it's not consistent at the moment. And, you know, the, the game is already complicated enough um, and and we're not doing much to to help educate fans, um, probably educate players as well because of the lack of consistency. So that, maybe some, look there's enough things for Joe Schmidt to look at in terms of the on-field uh, refereeing and things like that, but... It's probably the next step is to, is to try and get some kind of consistency there. And if you have the same people making the decisions um, every week, well then it's probably more chance of of getting some consistency. Uh, which, which isn't the case. I mean, you look up who the deciding officer is at at uh, a list of games. I mean, it, it's a, it's a lot of different people. And I don't want people out of their trip away and things like that. But um, it might be just something that we could we could get professionals involved in more.
2: What about that for a, for a prospective solution, Murray?
1: Yeah, it's probably something that needs a bit of investment. Um, whether this is the time that World Rugby are going to redirect some funds into that, I'd be surprised if if that was the case. But absolutely, that's how you would get a bit more cohesion, a bit more um, uniformity in, in decisions, and a bit more understanding from players and coaches who are equally as frustrated by all of this as to what's happening Um and you probably need a a big enough team there to absolutely nail everything. You would probably end up with a position where, cause like any time I watch matches back, and I'm sure you do as well, Birch. You you spot yeah. one or two, in probably every single game, um, especially now with the elbows and leading forearms. Even the burn one where he gets injured, like that's a leading elbow first, I think, before um the Toulouse carrier lands on him. And there's probably going to be even more bands then if this is. Um, I suppose souped up, and you get a department looking at it. But that's probably good for player welfare as well. Um, I, I listen, I, I can't see them making that investment. But as the frustration builds and builds, I yeah. think there's going to be more and more clamour for this to be f- figured out.
0: I actually think it's the opposite, uh, Murray. I don't think I think it's less investment because effectively at the moment there's a feeling that the signing officer commissioner needs to be at the game. Right. Uh, and, and that's obviously you've got your expenses involved in, in mo- bringing somebody to a game. Um, what I'm saying is, can that process not be moved offline like you review a game or I review a game after the game? You know, you've got professional referees who from Monday to Friday, I know they have their fitness sessions and, and all that. Um, but surely they're not busy nine to five Monday to Friday um, that they could find a couple of hours to do a game each and then have a central contact point where they discuss... All the incidents as a, as a group of referees, um, and then decide which ones deserve to go further. That that's what I'm saying. I'm not I'm not saying add additional resource. I'm saying get the people okay. who are uh, professional referees um, involved in this process. Uh, which I think I, th- I think could work better.
1: Okay. Yeah. That, that does make sense. Sorry, I thought you were talking about employing more people to to take on roles. But yeah, that would go. that would absolutely if make sense. The refs will tell you they're busy on a Monday. They'd, uh, they'd say they're flat okay, out. Give so them a <laughs> they've got a tough job as it is.
2: <laughs> one of these days we're going to lose one of you to uh, a really high-profile world rugby position, I think. So before that happens, let's chat about Exeter, <laughs> Leinster. Um, Bernard, when it became apparent that Leinster were going to be uh, travelling to Sandy Park to play Exeter without having uh, played their own last 16 game against Toulon what was your initial reaction because i guess everybody's instinct is to f- wonder okay who wins that game from the off and has that impression changed at all as the week gone um, on
0: look and i, I was happy leinster didn't have to play too long for, i think for, it's good for leinster to get our rest weekend um, i think they would have beaten Toulon, but it just took out the risk of injury gives them an extra couple of days to to focus on extra i'm sure I'm sure Leo are calling Stuart short. I've been having a look at Leicester for the last couple of weeks, to be honest. Um, it was they were always likely to beat Leon. I know Leon got a good start, um, but they're a very good side, and and uh, it's it's a brilliant fixture for Leicester to to test themselves again. Obviously, they haven't had a real chance, you know, to go to go really go into a a different level since Saracens. Obviously, and they they didn't they failed in that. So I think they're they've been itching for for this opportunity um and Exeter are the champions double champions and yeah they'll be relishing this and uh i, I think it'll be a fascinating game to be honest i think Exeter Exeter are a brilliant team to watch um have a real strong identity uh real stability really good team spirit have now tasted success and the hard part is to back it up to, to win two european cups in a consecutively is very difficult um and they'll be striving for that. And Leinster haven't won since 2018. And and I genuinely feel for Leinster. You know the the real challenge for them is to win European Cups. Uh, They're too strong for the Pro 14 at the moment. Um, so this team will 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 want to to rectify that. So it, it, yeah, it's it's the clash of the weekend for me.
2: Suppose that's been an interesting aspect of the build-up, Murray. The fact that both teams or both camps have been fairly transparent. Uh, in admitting that they watch each other fairly closely and have been watching each other probably from a fair while out uh, ahead of this game, long before the the fixture was even concrete, so it's a weird one. It's like both teams kind of know exactly what the other is going to do. Uh, does that then become an arm wrestle, or does it come down to bringing a little bit of nuance um, that you wouldn't say is is uh, that either team is averse to, but just trying to create something that the other team hasn't seen you do so far.
1: Yeah, I'm absolutely really excited by the prospect of seeing what Stuart Lancaster or Rob Baxter or whichever coach it is has kind of conjured up to throw a little bit of a different picture at the two teams. Because what a lot of what they do is is very similar and as you say, they've taken inspiration from each other. They're both remarkably effective down the 22 and have similar strategies and similar variety to it. It's Yes, it's about power, it's about grinding teams down, but even if you saw how Exeter did it last weekend against Leon, who defended it really poorly, it has to be said. I thought Sam Warburton was bang on in the commentary about Leon's lack of work rate getting around the corner and just filling those first couple of spots around the rook. But even at that, you know, it's not always just a pick and jam with the pre latches. Sometimes the player at the base of the rook can, can tip a pass. You saw one where there was a short pass and then tipped on again by Johnny Gray to Devoto running a, a line outside him. They can play out the back at times as well um, if the defence gets too um, condensed around the rook. So there is little strategies around it and and Leinster something similar, different ways and tools for finishing. Um, Even around some of the strike plays they use, they're they're similar, those kind of blocker plays. And I suppose everyone's using them now where the 12 will be the first receiver and they'll, they'll play out the back, but they both do it really well. So it'll be fascinating to see which of them can negate the, the strengths that they know so well and train against on a regular basis. And then what is the little point of difference? And it may be something really little. It may be one play. It may be one little change of a usual tactic um and throw something a little bit different. As well as the set-piece battle, which is massive for both teams. And they're the access points into the 22, into the good positions on the pitch. I think Leinster, weirdly enough, because last time in, in a big... Champions Cup game was against Saracens where the scrum got demolished but I have a feeling they might be really targeting that Leon got a little bit of change there and Birch will probably give give the, the technical insight on that but I feel uh, scrum and line out as well the Exeter success rate is down around 80% I think they've had a few little issues there and Leon got some good pressure again so I think that set-piece battle and the penalties there and the as I say the
0: access points are going to be absolutely massive in this yeah just just something for people watching the game. I mean, we well certainly my impression of, of Exeter had been, you know, um, you know, really good philosophy in terms of playing from deep, keeping the ball alive, playing down the blind side, um, but in the twenty two, really relying on their on their forwards, and they've actually shifted their their kind of strategy, um, from kicking to the corner and mauling, um, they'll actually kick to the corner and play off the top um and and hit up the center or play some kind of a back peel to get him away from that touchline and get them towards the post for that pick and go game, uh, which they're very successful on. So that's that's an interesting one um in terms of a little adaptation they've done. Um they, they don't kick to the corner and maul as much as as Leinster will. Um they want to get get towards the posts uh, and open up both sides but obviously very reliant on our forwards I think scrum wise yeah Harry Williams struggled a little bit last weekend you know Leon have a good a good pack and, and, and um, uh, you know they tested a bit but I think they'll have learned a lot from that I thought the scrum was quite messy last week and I think looking at how Leinster scrum um, it's it's much more around stability and, and being able to play off it um, and they've they've got much tighter in that since Saracen so um, I don't think that Leinster scrum will be as messy as Leons, and I think both teams will have good quality ball to to play off. Um, and but I, I just think the physicality and ability to turn, you know, twenty two entries into points. Both teams are brilliant at it. Um, and it could be just one big defensive stand, um, one jackal turnover that could could win the game. Uh, because that like there's very little between these two teams. Um, and it's it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be fascinating
1: and they can both they can both open up like again with the Munster final we saw Leinster probably be a bit more uh, play with a little bit more width and a couple more passes in the middle third to create chances clearly having identified that as, as you said after that game Bernard and Exeter have worked hard to probably build those strands even their kick return obviously with Stuart Hogg coming in that was going to be a massive part of what he added as well as kicking strengths um, and being able to strike on on set piece plays but they have got that little bit more intent now, where if you kick a little bit loosely out to them, they'll, you know, but in the past, oftentimes they were kind of grinding phase play team, but now they strike with a little bit more intent early. I think on turnover as well, um, and guys like Woodburn and and O'Flaherty are, are more than capable of doing that as well. Henry Slade is a classy attacking player, and even Simmons at at out half can can open up as well. So they've probably built those strands as well as as Leinster while not always going to them in in games where they can physically dominate and and bully their way to it. So it has all the makings of an unbelievably even and, as we said on Monday, Gav final-esque kind of game, albeit at the the quarter-final stage.
2: Just from a Leinster defensive strategy strategy point of view, Bernard, uh, if you're saying, say, that uh, Exeter are trying to move play towards the posts and it opens up, either side. Does that mean then to cut out their, their pick and go strength, Leinster need to actually stop it nearly at source and prevent them from getting to central areas in the twenty two? Like is there a way of stopping it before it even becomes an issue?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I well, obviously the the um the defensive line out, you know, Murray's has flagged that their the percentages have, have dropped a little bit down to eighty percent, in eighty percent, low eighty percent and obviously that's the best part. I think once Exeter get the ball in a the twenty two, they are difficult to stop because they're very similar. I mean, you know, um, Leinster started to do the, the tap and go instead of kicking to the corner or, or scrummaging, and it's pre-planned four phases with the right guy carrying, the right guy latching. I mean, Exeter have been doing this for for three or four years on, on general play, you know, and that's why they have such a high conversion rate. So realistically, I think if they get into that crash uh, or uh, ground and pound type game. It's going to be difficult, and the best the best place to stop them is, is at line-out. And uh, Leo's selection, um, you know, in terms of obviously uh, who he can pick this weekend and how they can, you know, maybe they'll give him the front and, and make them make them play play off, try and play off the front, and that obviously gets you a chance to catch him behind the game line, or or will they commit, you know, with two and a half pods in the air and a uh, single lift to the front and try and cover off all options. But if they can rob one there, if they can rob one there... Um, you know it, it's, it's literally something just one turnover um could could decide it because i do think if, if exeter get five or six yards out in the middle of the middle of the field um it's, it's they're so good um and the way the laws are at the moment they'll they'll get, be playing off a penalty advantage and they'll probably score
2: if you were rob Baxter, then murray what would be the one area in particular that you'd be looking to stop leinster succeeding in
1: there's so many to choose from. Literally every part of their game like every part of their game is, is strong and I know I heard Alex Anderson talking about La Rochelle and he's saying we, we kinda of focus on um, shark bait players each week and guys we have to stop but he said La Rochelle have a number of them but so do so do Leinster and guys as Bernard said who are are mass sharp. But I kinda of had the feeling that Leinster would have liked the game to get a bit more cohesion in their team before a test as big as this um so you can see it see it both ways i think if he's picking out one i suppose it's stopping those leinster forwards getting a bit of a gain line because we saw the results of that against munster when they win the first couple of carries and and they're really good at doing that they have a number of tools like not just bullying power but their footwork is really good they can tip passes in or out um and they're really good at timing their runs. I think it's been really prominent recently, especially off nine. Someone like Josh van der Fleer, who's not the biggest guy, but he's been bringing brilliant timing and aggression in that sense. Once Leinster get that little bit of, of go forward, someone like Johnny Sexton pulling the strings and an array of backline talents. Robbie Henshaw being one of the most informed backs in 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 rugby, really. Um they're very difficult to stop, so I'd say they'll they'll put a massive focus on that as as they do every single weekend, and they've got a lot of meaty, tough forwards, um, guys like Johnny Gray, obviously big, massive, giant of a man, um, Sam Simmons, who's been unlucky with England, really unlucky, but is an absolute force of nature for them. They've got guys who will be really th- thrilled at, at at facing a challenge like that against Leinster as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a riveting kind of match.
2: Birch, it must be so enjoyable this week for a coach on both sides of it, really, because there's absolutely no animosity between them, to my knowledge at least. Uh, they ooze respect for each other publicly, um, both Lancaster and Cullen and Baxter. And yet, that almost makes it personal. When you admire each other's work, you want to get one up on the other. And separate to just wanting your teams to win, there is a kind of a strategic or tactical battle to be won here and both sides will be aspo- absolutely desperate to win it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know a little bit about Exeter because I, I did a bit of study on him and they, they actually empower the players to do a huge amount of the of the strategy work. So Baxter Baxter's a, is a bit of a nose on the game so he still codes the games himself and everything. So it's not like he, he doesn't have you know uh, a strong work ethic granted that. It's it's effectively they have groups who each week um, have to basically pick out clips of the opposition and, and then obviously pick out how they're going to target that or, or or what elements of their game can can work against and they present on the Monday. So they, they'll do the work. They would have done the work for Leinster um previous week um or previous week and everyone's involved in it and um they present back to the coaches and group then and then they agree on on a strategy. So it's it's uh it's very interesting they're probably the club who've gone the deepest in that that I've seen and and so their players are 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 tactically very uh very strong um and what the players and coaches see in leinster because we don't see them being tested that that often i think there's one little area that they probably will go after is that pick and go through the middle uh, because leinster fan out so well because they've got such line good line integrity because we've got good line spacing and they have been caught a little bit um there on occasions, and that might be something that we see um, CX are going after because they have the, the ball players in around the rook to, to go through the rook. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they try and implement a little bit of that. But after that, it's a case of not getting spooked. I mean, there's a rumor going around that Munster spent a lot of time the week of the final trying to change their game to play Leinster. And what we saw was they didn't really get to implement anything. So you have to be very careful. That whatever slight tactical change you make, it's aligned to things that you do well, um, and have done in the past, um, especially in a in a in a in a one week turnaround. So, that'll be. I don't see there being drastic shifts, um, in, in terms of how both teams play, and I do think Leinster played the way they played in the first half against Munster because of Munster's defence. So, I I would I w- I'd be surprised if Leinster got that space on the outside as easily against Exeter or even try to get it as easily as as uh, or try to get it as early in the game but look that's what makes it fascinating and we'll uh, we look forward to seeing what both teams uh try and do to, to target each other
2: well if it does become an arm wrestle murray then that's likely where it'll be decided is that if there is that one little bit of space at one juncture in the game who takes it and uh, i'm asking you that question who actually does take it do you think or who wins
1: it's it's, impo- it's impossible to call really. I'll go Exeter by a point. Their home, they've got a real drive in their journey, but that's not to say Exeter don't either. I think yeah, I'm just randomly picking out a number to be honest. Exeter. That's how home. you
2: know it's a good one. Bert is there a point in asking?
0: <laughs> yeah, no. I I fancy Exeter actually. I I think, um, I think this is massive for them. I think, um, I don't think they saw the Saracens result coming. It was so hard to see coming. Obviously, everything that happened, um, and I think they. They need Europe badly, um, and, and I think they they have enough quality to get to, to overcome it.
2: Can't wait for it. Let's chat women's six nations then before I let you go, gentlemen. And uh, while well, the tournament has already kicked off, uh, and as a week old, Ireland kick off their own campaign this weekend against Wales. They're talking a big game, right? Uh, Looking at some of the uh, interviews that the players have been doing during the week, and they really fancy uh, an upset in this competition. It it wouldn't be an upset to beat Wales. They beat them well last season, uh, or last year rather, and Wales got hockeyed by France in their opener. But it's a chance, I guess, to start your campaign off on the right foot. We've seen it in the men's competition so often. How how many times have you and Owen Toulon spoken about it? Momentum is key. Get off with the winning start and then see what happens from there.
1: Particularly with such a short, condensed format where you've got two games and you're into your your playoff. There's no room for error in this game in particular because obviously England and France are still streets ahead and that is worrying that they're going to pull even further ahead and listen, not pointing fingers at Scotland or Wales, like they're Dealing with what they've they've got, but it it's um it's not great in the first weekend when there's two hammerings. Let's be honest. Um, but Ireland the the confidence is based on having had so much time training together. Obviously, you want to be playing games, but they've never had like twenty camps together to focus on tactics to improve all sorts of things. Even conditioning wise, they they feel they're in the best place possible. Plus the bits we've seen, albeit very limited, but. Back in October when they played Italy, it was a really promising performance. There were some brilliant passages of of attacking play in that game. If people can think back where it was multi-phase, it was forwards and backs connected. There was real width, there was lovely handling skill, there was little bits of innovation, a couple of vertical stacks, things like that. Players clearly grasping um, some of the tactical guidance they'd be given and taking a bit of ownership for decision-making responsibility as well. And they defended superbly in that game. There were some massive tackle counts their breakdown, aggression and accuracy really in, in the jackal was excellent as well. So they'll feel that their most recent reference points is a really a really strong one, and even before in twenty twenty early twenty twenty pre covid, there were there were promising signs there as well. So before this all got shut up shut down and and slowed up, Ireland were definitely moving in the right direction and and um, will feel they're they're well poised to do that now this weekend. They're away from home and. Um, Wales absolutely as you say are going to be really eager to bounce back and show more of what they're they're capable of but it feels like a, a good chance for Ireland to, to kick things on the squad is in a, a pretty good place a couple of injuries to the likes of, of Muldoon and, and Cooney's out as well um, but Aoife McDermott's back in there and younger players as well have stood up I, I can't wait to see Baven Parsons play again it's a really obvious one but she is a superstar and every time she gets the ball Create something defensively. I thought in that Italy game, she was superb. When they got aggressive up on the edge, made some really good reads. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a it's a really exciting place for the squad in terms of personnel as well. Even in the back row with Claire Malloy having returned, um, you've actually got some tough decisions to make there because Dorothy Wall, Dorothy Wall rather, has emerged as a real force as well physically and learning all the time. So I think they're in a pretty good place. Gav, this is a massive fixture because the week after you're playing France and while they will be very ambitious about winning that, realistically they've got to make sure they've they've ticked the W box this coming weekend.
2: Britch, I saw Catherine Dane mentioned they'd been training for basically 20 weeks in advance of the tournament and just wondering from a coaching point of view, like what are the challenges there that Adam Griggs would have faced? I guess in terms of keeping players fresh, not only physically but mentally because it feels like an enormous uh, camp almost to be in. I know there would have been breaks but um it's an enormous amount of preparation towards a tournament like when you're getting all of these delays and postponements and 6 months since they last played a competitive game. So how do you navigate that as a coach?
0: Yeah, I think it's very difficult um and I think it's probably credit to um the players' um motivation and resolve that they've been able to to, to stay in the in the fight for that long and I'm sure they're just itching to play. I think the big problem for them is they're not getting games elsewhere, you know, and um so it's just how intense you can make training does he have the quality to be able to do, you know, proper fifteen v fifteen and have a very competitive or a test level um, standard? I'm I, I'm not sure. I'm sure he's going to try and develop that depth. Um, and obviously Wales have had the advantage of having having played a game, even though it was a it was a tough defeat. But that will be a big advantage to them. So look, I'm sure they just no no team deserve to to get out in the field and play um, as much as uh, uh, as as they do, given. Given what they've had to put in over the last time and the uncertainty around the calendar, but uh, yeah, and I think the coaches, you know, I, I, they seem to have a really good relationship with the with the players, and um, I'm I'm sure that they've got that balance right in terms of trying to work on the game, but also you know keep the mind um, the mind right as well because it must be so frustrating being that long without playing and also obviously not knowing for sure what, what's going to happen. But now they have a bit more certainty in their calendar, and yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how they go uh, on, on Saturday
2: in that. Uh, I think it, uh, it might have been Aoife McDermott rather than Catherine Dane who said it during the week but the idea that because the IRFU have, have provided a, a little bit more uh, in the department of or in the area of resources Ireland feel confident Murray that over the next couple of years they, they can bridge that gap a little bit and become almost um, as Aoife described it as uh, ne- nearly a semi-professional team and that will allow them to, to move that little bit closer to France and England between now and then while that progress continues and allowing for the fact that they're extremely confident that they have become a better team over the last 12 months um even without without playing much games many games is it about beating the other sort of like the other teams in and around their um level or how important is it that they actually get an upset is that even a realistic thing to expect for them to knock off england and france in the next couple of years or or are they too far ahead
1: it will, be, it will be a massive upset in in the short term and as i say because those programs i mean professionalism in in England semi pro in France because they're in place now that probably accelerates things even even more and that's not to say like the irish players are unbelievably professional and have been for a long time in their approach and their training and their camps are really high quality and high pressure and that side of things there's no doubt about how much is is being put in by individuals and maximising every bit of resource they have, but it can always have more support. And professionalism here clearly is a long way away because, I mean, David Nusifora said as much recently, that's not a priority for them. The priority is is behind that probably in, in getting the structures and, and the pathway and the pipeline right to create a little bit more depth before that point. So absolutely, in the next few years, without wanting to sound unambitious on, on their behalf, Ireland will... Have to be targeting being that third place nation in Six Nations time, all the more so because that's what qualifies you into the top tier of the WXV competition from twenty twenty three onwards. And absolutely looking for scalps every single time. You're never going to go and play for Ireland against England, against France, against anyone. Thinking we're we're going to lose here, or it's okay for us to lose here. So, absolutely, they'll feel if they'll feel right now this weekend if they can get a a bounce with a good performance get back to that progress they were making then they've got France at home um, and th- you know that's a, an advantage in terms of the travel etc so they'll feel they can always make a um, a good shot at, at winning um, against those top tier nations but I do see the gap opening up and I think there is onus on the RFU to make sure that that's stuff they're talking about in terms of the good work that's been done with, with Girls rugby, B uh, getting the structure nailed on in terms of AIL and that competition for players when they're not in Ireland camp that's really important, um, because again, England have their Premier Fifteens, and there's some strong French clubs as well. So it's good. It's it's a good kind of barometer for for Irish rugby to keep up with.
2: Bert, will they get the job done in Wales this weekend?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think um, uh, I, I think they're building nicely, and uh, even though the lack of match practice will will obviously I think take a while to to get out of their system. Um, I think this Welsh team are vulnerable, and, and Ireland will win. Same for you, Mer?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm feeling positive about their, their chances and I think they'll play a, an attractive brand of rugby and I'll be really interested to, also to see the engagement from everywhere, everywhere else. Um, as Byrne says, it's unfortunate in terms of the actual timing of the clash, but it's on RTE and it's uh, an Ireland team and there's no clash with a, a men's Ireland team. So there'll be opportunity there for people to tune in and hopefully see a, a really good
2: performance. Looking forward to it. One last question that came in. Just before the deadline, as we were beginning to record record from our good pal, Kalon in the 42 members WhatsApp group, members.the42.ie, if you want to join up there and join the good folks in there. Uh, Kalon was saying, can you ask the lads, and I'll direct this to yourself first, Bernard, if they think the GIF rules in France... Uh, has helped increase the number of French teams making a run at Europe. We now see uh, Mathias Lebel being crucial at Toulouse, Arthur Retier at La Rochelle, whereas seven years ago, it was Drew Mitchell and Brian Abana at one club. Have the rules helped to broaden the standard across the top 14? And and first, Birch, if you would mind just giving people a refresher or um, a synopsis as to what the rules actually are. Yeah, so basically,
0: um, is is a player who's formed... Um, or comes through a French academy, and um, if they spend three years in a French academy and they pass certain criteria around education, etc., um, then they're GIF for life. And, and basically, there's, there's a very strict rules around how many GIF players um, you have to have in your match day 23 for the top 14, um, which is now 16. You have to have six, an average of 16 GIF players in your squad for top 14, except for the team who gets promoted. They have they're allowed to have one less for the first year, which is 15. So beyond this year can have 15. Um all the other clubs have to finish at the end of the season on 16. Um so that's very important. And also um the other thing is you get your your TV money um is based on a percentage of GIF. So the more you have uh the more you have over 16, the more money you get. So for example, at the moment, um are out in front, they have an average of 20.1. GIF players per matchday squad, um, and Bordeaux are at 15.9. So, currently, Bordeaux are under it, right? So, how this manifests itself is that the every week the ma- the coach would have to go to the president when he picks his team, and uh, the president would want to know how many GIF players he has. And obviously, look at uh, for Urias, who's the coach of Bordeaux, he's at 15.9, he'll get to 16, but it will be in his mind as he plans his selection over the next. Um, three or four rounds in the top 14 to get to 16 and stay over 16. So that's the issue. The issue is in terms of how it's improved. Is we used to, it used to be nine. Okay, so when I was in Grenoble, um, I was able to have an average of 14 um, non gif in my matchday squad. And again, every week I'd, I'd have to go to the president when I picked the team and make sure that we were on target to hit nine. Um, so it's it's uh, the amount of foreign players you can pick has decreased. Uh, massively uh, which has made the focus change on producing your own players plus as I said the money you get back from TV the higher you are so for example Agen are relegated uh, or sorry are, are about to be relegated they're on 18.75 so for them now the priority is to play as many GIF players as they can towards the end of the season to get more money back which will help them get promoted next year um, the other thing that's changed as well is there's a sell on value for, for French players. So for example, um, a couple of guys in the Grenoble Academy when I was there are now playing elsewhere. So Ali Oz is the title at Racing, Gerasy is a second row at Leon, Cordon is at Toulon and Focard is at, at Claremont, Grenoble would have got a big check for all of those players because they came through our academy. So again, even if the players are off contract, if they've been formed in your academy and they leave, you get a, a basically a, a compensation based on how many years they spent in your academy, how many first-team games they played, did they play French under-20s, etc. So there's a multiplier effect. So suddenly there's pressure on clubs to produce French-qualified players because there's an incentive there in terms of money, but it's also a re- uh, regulation in terms of the average. And that that wasn't there five years ago. So hence the academies now are being run in a much more professional manner like i'll be honest when i got there in france um they were very amateur the amateur association ran the academy and the professional team was the senior team and there was a there was a disconnect whereas now the presidents and the directors of rugby and the director sport know that they're going to be reliant on that academy uh, to produce players so um whereas Racing have gone and bought some of the best young talent from other clubs they've also invested in their own academy so in future they don't have to buy the best talent. So these are the reasons why you see like DuPont was was formed in cast, but Toulon, as I said, Toulouse went and bought him. Um and but now clubs like Cast, clubs like Grenoble, clubs like Montemarsan, etc., they are spending more time trying to produce players for their own team, but also understanding the potential sale value, which can help um, I suppose, keep the club alive. So some smart decisions made by the league and the FFR together four or five years ago, which is now paying off in terms of having five teams in the quarterfinals of the Champions Cup, having, you know, a French national team full of young talent um, with massive depth. We saw the team that played against England in the final of the Autumn Cup where a lot of their first string weren't available and the drop-down wasn't, wasn't uh, as high as probably would be in other countries. So it's, again, you know, that going back to the Munster thing and, and the RFU, you know, these are the t- types of strategic decisions that need to be made now that in five years' time, you uh you just you t- you take for granted, you know when there's uh when there's proper depth in each position.
1: And it was interesting to hear. It was Razzier Estimus on off the ball. I think this week he said, he was just commenting from the outside, and he said Ireland's player pool and depth was one of the things he probably f- felt could improve in terms of only having what do you say, 160 players. Obviously, South African rugby has loads, and now France, as they say, has s- scary depth. And, like, Labelle is a fascinating example because he played two years under-20s. In his first year under-20s, when he was obviously still a year under age, he was playing top-14 games. Obviously, he's a prodigious talent to be getting opportunity in, in a club like Toulouse. But if it wasn't there, then there was somewhere else he could have gone because there are top-14 clubs and there are another 16 in the Pro-D2. And guys, as Bernard has mentioned before, have gone there and, and played a lot of games. And there's ex- exposure. Every time you look at the France under-20 squad at the start of a Six Nations Championship... The vast majority of them, really, these days, have played senior rugby, whereas Ireland's haven't. I suppose another example would be Roman Entomac, and someone like Harry Byrne, who's slightly older than him, can't get a game with with Leinster. I suppose in in the big, big games, and Entomac again was playing when he was probably a year underage for under twenties as well. So that's definitely a, a good point, Birch. Um, you could probably do a whole podcast on that. But like, where where do you make that decision to to do something different to benefit five years time?
2: Super stuff as always, men. This podcast was brought to you in association with Guinness, proud sponsors of the Women's Six Nations, which kicks off this weekend. Uh, Remember to drink responsibly. Enjoy all of the games over the weekend as well, Champions Cup and Six Nations. It's not a bad little combination. We will be back on Monday, Murray and Owen Toulon back in his uh, throne and back in this regular slot as well next Thursday. In the meantime, mind yourselves, take it easy.
1: I don't think we've met before But I'm the referee on this field
2: Leinster could have me five mil a year I wouldn't go <laughs> It is Chavino Robbie, Robbie weekly
0: in the first pass